welcome to Base Camp for Men. I'm your host, Tony Rezac. This is the show that gives you insights and resources in how to live a more courageous life. We'll be looking at men, the current state of masculinity, and how to create a more inspiring narrative for all men. Welcome and let's get started. Across time and culture, when things get so serious, there will arise the expressions of an archetype that will have none of this nonsense. The mythical trickster, the boundary crosser. Tricksters violate principles of social and natural order, playfully disrupting normal life and then reestablishing it on a new basis. The trickster openly questions and mocks authority. As a collective expression, the trickster can show us new possibilities when things get too regimented, too bound up by rules, and too mature or predictable. The trickster wants to reshuffle the deck, to pull your pants down as you're addressing the crowd, and to keep us all on our toes so that play can have its say. Play may very well be the key to our transformation. By bringing creative thought to the forefront of our issues, we move from traditional problem-solving with its traditional modes of thinking to radical reimagining along the trickster's hearty appetite for fun, dynamic change, and complete disregard for the status quo. What would a play society look and feel like? It sounds interesting to me. There are some problems that need a serious approach, no doubt but I sometimes wonder where the light, playful approach would yield more vibrant and interesting possibilities. What would the trickster do today? It is certainly an intriguing idea. My guest today has written a book about this very thing. Shepard Siegel was a rock and jazz musician, then educator, earning his doctorate at UC Berkeley. He has over 30 publications and numerous awards. He returned to his countercultural roots to write Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture, which is a fantastic book, by the way, and share its message of playfulness and progressive change. Siegel lives in Seattle with a growing community of merry pranksters. Here is my interview with Shepard Siegel. <laughs> All right. I've got Shepard Siegel, author, Dr. Shepard Siegel, on the show today. It's great to have you on Base Camp for Men. Welcome, Shep. It's great to be here, Tony. Uh, I just finished your book, Disruptive Play. First of all, it was funny how we got connected. Shep, Shep was uh, signing books at Barnes & Noble in Seattle, and I heard his book, Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture. It caught my ear when they said who it was, and I'm somebody that's into Jungian archetypes, and you know, in men's work, we do a lot of archetypal work, and I I'm not that familiar with the trickster. So I was like, huh, this guy knows all about the trickster and wrote a book. And I went over and met him and got his autograph on the book and then said, just on a whim, said, hey, you want to come on the show? And he's like, Shep was like, yeah, I'll come on. <laughs> so it was really, there's a lot of synchronicity there. I so appreciate you coming on. And the book is fantastic. I love how you, you present the, the trickster and then you go through what is kind of like the powerhouse of kind of modern tricksters. Abby, Abby Hoffman, you got the Simpsons in there, the counterculture of the 60s, Banksy, Anonymous, and the Yes Men, which I didn't really know about the Yes Men. That was great to hear. Mm -hmm. Fremont Solstice Parade, which I've been a part of, and then Burning Man. And I just thought it was a great overview of the ways that the archetypal trickster kind of expresses itself and shows up in modern times. How did you get? interested in this. I know you grew up in the Bay Area in the 60s, so that was like grand central for trickster expression in the 60s, I would imagine. Right. And, but how, how did that come about as a, 
kind of topic that you were really going to kind of dig down into and, and get to the, the meat of it? How did that happen? Well, uh, you, you nailed it in a lot of ways, Tony. It was, it did come to me though, not consciously. I didn't realize that that's what I was gravitating to. Um, I was, I was a young teenager in the sixties. So the real hippies and black Panthers and activists were my big brothers and sisters. Um, I was just a little bit on the young side, which means I was probably more deeply influenced and affected by it. And so I went to high school in in Palo Alto. It was during the Vietnam War. Uh, Stanford University was right across the street. And back in those days, Stanford was actually, it wasn't Berkeley, but it was quite the hotbed still of anti-war activism. So there was a lot of commerce between the high schools and the university campus. Well, two of the high schools, um, mine, Palo Alto High and Carberly, got very involved. And what was interesting was that the leading anti-war activists in, at Carberly gravitated towards a, you know, a more of a Marxist-Leninist line. They had central committees. They had hierarchies. They had platforms. They had documentation. In uh, my high school, we were more into Dada. We were into situationism. We were into anarchy. And we were into pranks. And what high school student, you know, doesn't gravitate towards getting licensed to, uh, to commit pranks a lot. To break the rules, right? Yeah. It's a dream come true, right? Yeah. I, you know, years later when I'm doing research for the book, I, I read this book called, uh, by Annie Gottlieb called Do You Believe in Magic? And she does a really nice job of summarizing the three political strands. One was kind of the Timothy Leary strand, which said, well, if everybody just took acid, our consciousness would be instantly transformed and the world would change for the better. And I'm not completely dismissing that, but there's, that's one. And then the other was the more organized, new left politics that was much more sober and, and disciplined and so forth. And that has its value. But then the third was the yippies. And Abby Hoffman, for me, and you named him already, really embodied a lot of that trickster energy. And that is really what the folks at my high school and what I gravitated towards and stuck with it. Uh, it, it made a, a big influence. The other answer to your question is that um, I just didn't even use the word trickster, was only dimly aware of Jungian archetypes, but there was that thing. It was happening. Mm -hmm. That spirit was really alive. Years later, I wrote the entire book and just from the perspective of playfulness and the playfulness of the child is animated by grownups. And then I went to a conference, a great organization, some of your your listeners might be interested in called uh, TASP, the Association for the Study of Play. Mm -hmm. And while it has a lot of play scholars in it, it also really invites all kinds of folks uh, to come, a lot of teachers and a lot of people who are just advocates for play, uh, more play in life. And I met a woman there who said, you know, you really should take a look at Lewis Hyde's book, Trickster Makes This World. And that really is a central book for understanding the trickster archetype. Once again, Trickster Makes This World by Lewis Hyde. So I read that and I had to go back and rewrite the whole book. Ah. Now I got that it was Trickster I was talking about all along without knowing it. Got it. That's great. That's a yeah. great story. I mean, you know, as somebody that's steeped in men's work, we need more play. There's a lot of ways that men can develop themselves, but you know, I, I'm somebody that loves to play. I've, I was an athlete, but I just love play in general. It's so uplifting. And as men in our culture, we just tend to get really super serious. Like we can just get 
especially at our age, you know, you get, you get a job and you're nose to the grindstone and you can really forget that that's a real big part of your joy. You know, there's, a, I know a lot of really good men with just muted joy. It's almost like they forgot that like little boy, rambunctious rule breaker. It's like, I got a 12 year old son. It's like, thank God he's in the house. He's a constant reminder not to take it seriously. <laughs> right. Yeah, that's great. And I think you, you, you're right. Um, uh, a man can adopt kind of a stoic uh, posture and has to be responsible, strong and silent. And so doesn't remember to play in that way. And then the flip side of that is there's a real difference between being playful and still a grown up and mm-hmm. being playful and immature. Right. And we're all working on maturity, of course. So, yeah. so it gets tricky. Yeah. Uh, to kind of find that sweet spot where you're being playful, but you're not being immature or that you're, you're, or you're not repressing your playfulness either. Yeah. I think that's a good point. I think men, I think that's the fear is like, if I'm, if I'm playful, men will see me as, as frivolous or I don't take things seriously. Right. I'm immature. The last thing a man wants to be seen as immature at 40, 50, 60 years old. Right. Exactly. So, and you, you talked about in the book about disruptive play. You made a distinction on that. How is that different from just ordinary play? I'm out throwing the ball around with my son, playing catch, who feels very playful, but disruptive play is different, isn't it? Sure, yeah. Like, well, these play scholars I talked about earlier, they've come up with 138 different forms of play. Really? That yeah. many? And I'm going to go through them now one at a time. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I just talk about three kinds. Uh, so, original play is something I learned about from a, a gentleman named Fred Donaldson. And he wrote a wonderful book. It's also, all these books are in the bibliography of disruptive play. His book is called Playing by Heart. He was able to connect with wild animals, with dolphins, with wolves. But he also, um, there were, if there were uh, young women and girls, for example, who m- may have been sexually abused, he used play as a therapy to mm-hmm. help them work through their issues. He's really quite brilliant. And his basis is what we call original play, which is the playfulness that all animals do. All living things do it. And baby humans do it. But by the time we're three or four, um, our parents and culture start saying, well, you know that abstract, nonspecific playfulness, that frolic, it's non-competitive that you do, you know, you could turn that into a game. You could have winners and losers. You could keep score. And that enters the second type of play, which is called cultural play. And there's nothing wrong with that, except that I believe it's gotten out of hand in our society. We're so overly competitive. But that is the the difference between original and cultural play. Well, quite simply, disruptive play is when you inject original play into the cultural play arena. So to give you the most banal example, if I'm streaking and I take my clothes off and I run onto the field where an NFL football game is being played, it really ticks people off because you're disrupting their game. Disruptive play means you're disrupting cultural play. Now, what would you think is the ultimate form of disruptive play of competition between adults? Well, it's war. Right. So disruptive play, you know, the iconic figure, once again, from the 60s is the hippie putting the flower in the barrel of the gun of the National Guardsman. And that's, that's disruptive play. Abby Hoffman meeting with the generals of the Pentagon to get a permit to exorcise the demons of the Pentagon and levitate it 300 feet off the, off the ground. That's disruptive play. 
And you mentioned the yes men. And I got to say, um, I wish more people did know about them. Uh, uh, they are two gentlemen from Montreal who do all kinds of pranking, but pranking in the, in the interest of social justice. They have a social justice agenda and they have a great sense of humor. The most famous thing they did was in, in the uh, 1990s, I don't have all my notes in front of me, but I, I think the dates are pretty right on. Uh, there was a company called um, uh, Union Carbide, which since got bought by another large chemical company, and they had a plant in Bhopal, India, and the plant exploded. And 19,000 people died eventually, and there's still babies being born with birth defects. And they negotiated with the Indian government and made some reparations that were measly at best. So the Yes Men saw this injustice, and what they did is they would put up fake websites. So they put up a fake website and pretended to be this, this chemical company. It's one of the big ones. I don't know why I'm blanking on it, but... Dow Chemical? No, thank you very much. So they put up a fake website and they pretend to be vice presidents of the, of the company. And then they wait around for somebody to call and invite them to speak at a conference. And they got called to address a bunch of bankers in England. And they went to England. They got on BBC Four as imposters. And then when they got in front of this conference of bankers, they said they were going to make full reparations to everyone who was affected by this, uh, this tragedy. And uh, one of their slogans is kind of like, we, we tell lies to expose the truth. Mm. So they're, they're true tricksters. They're using playfulness, but they're exposing very, very serious issues. Didn't you say in the book, too, that they were under criticism from the media saying, oh, how dare you? That's insensitive to the survivors. But when they traveled back there and talked to the survivors, they actually appreciated the trickster exposing the, the corporate corruption. And I thought that was brilliant. You're exactly right. And they're also interesting because if you look at the trickster cycles, tricksters are initially amoral, which is really hard for people to get their arms around. They're not evil, but they're just not good either. But as the cycle completes, it's the trickster cycle that teaches us the birth of morality. And obviously, the yes men have an agenda, have a moral code that they follow. But you start out with you just want to have fun. You said it a couple times today already about not taking things seriously. And that is the hallmark of the trickster, which if you incorporate that into your personality, it can be kind of hard on your friendships sometimes. <laughs> and people kind of can get tired of someone who doesn't take anything seriously. And we think of it as that you're immature, that it's, that it's a, a menial approach to life. But then when you think about it another way, not taking anything seriously is part of the divine perspective. If we were gods looking down on earth and we'd see all this stuff we take very seriously, this horrible shit we do, but you'd have to laugh. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you would just have to laugh at humanity. So it's a part of perspective. That's great. You'll appreciate this. A couple nights ago, I was reading your book. I was finishing it up and I was going to sleep and I had this, I was kind of half dreaming and half falling asleep. And I just thought, you mentioned Bugs Bunny in your book. You know, we were all exposed to trickster bugs as kids watching, you know, he was, he was everybody. He was our favorite, you know, cartoon character. And I just thought, what a great thing if we could beam Bugs Bunny over to China, right? <laughs> if, if we could expose the Chinese to regular doses of Bugs Bunny, what would that do to their consciousness? How would that change the state of mind, the collective state, 
you know, I, I, I giggle at the, at the thought of it because I just think, oh man, bugs would just mess up that whole system. Right? I haven't been to China, but you've got me, you've got my, I'm intrigued. I'm intrigued now. And How do we do it? Yeah. <laughs> you, you'd mentioned a play society in the book and you reference Burning Man as maybe a modern example of, of a group, of a tribe that's kind of taken a bite out of that. Is, is, is that the closest thing that we have to a play society? If we wanted to introduce more play, what would a play society look like? I've often thought that we, we tend to play the same games. I don't know if you've come across new games. I always thought like fresh games would be really, really fantastic. I know there's board games being invented and stuff, but like we tend to play the same kind of games when, we're, when we get together. Um, play society and your take on it, I guess, is what I'm really asking. I love that question because it's, it's the one we need to all work together to answer. And I hate that question because it's so hard to answer. Yeah. And, and it's like you have to get to the horizon and look over the horizon to see what's next. In order to explain trickster energy, you have to talk about the trickster gods, about Loki, about Raven, about Eshu. You have to talk about Dada, which is more of a movement, but you talk about Alfred Jarry and you talk about Marcel Duchamp. But what I'm curious about is two things. Number one, that tricksters, we tend to see the stories come about through the, the whole classic Western narrative of there has to be conflict. And so the trickster comes in and enters conflict by mocking power, which makes it more interesting than your typical story, but it still fits in that Western type of narrative. I'm mocking power and Abby Hoffman did this and he, he came into conflict in order to dispel conflict. It's a fun paradox to call the game and say, I'm not going to compete and play the game. But it's really hard on an individual. And if you watch the Yes Men movies, we'll see what a toll it took on them, which is why I want more people to know about them because these guys can't keep it up. I don't even know how they, they managed to not get arrested but they have gone up against major corporations and really ticked them off, right? Mm -hmm. So my answer is twofold. One is, what does trickster energy look like when there isn't a power structure to mock? What does that energy look like when it doesn't have a foil? And the second answer is, what does it look like when it's not a single person, but it's a collective effort? It's a consciousness shared by a larger mass. So I go back to Dada, because that's what Dada really was. Dada was, uh, tried, they tried to keep themselves as anonymous as possible. You know, Dada was as much an anti-war movement, in this case, the war being World War I, as it was an art movement. And then, of course, you have the counterculture and the hippies and the commune movement, which was also an attempt. Now, how is that playful and how is that trickster? Well, along come the artists uh, and, and Burning Man, and, and, and here you have an I don't want to say art is controlled, but there, there's the artistic theme is, I don't like the word dominant either, but you get what I'm getting at. Yeah, I get you. Yeah, the, the context. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And you release these artists and any good artist is, is definitely uh, wrestling with and animating some trickster energy. And you let them try to organize a community with as few rules as possible. Boom. Trickster energy liberated. There's no power structure to mock, but it's still there. And, you know, and it's a beautiful thing and themes of love and communion and people coming together and people supporting each other and playfulness that is not violent uh, flourishes. So it gives me a lot of hope 
that people like this who are there are so influenced and their, their inspiration and influence will continue. I got to say, Tony, though, sometimes I, I, I feel downright silly and not in a good way when I talk about this stuff because we are living in such serious times. There's such nasty stuff going on. And you know, I write about 4chan mm-hmm. and the interesting thing of the internet being a big playground. And then, you know, you and I are talking on August 6, 2019, when 8chan is in the news and, mm-hmm. and we've had some very, very horrible killings. And uh, folks have said to me, uh, boy, your book's coming out at the perfect time. <laughs> and I go, now sometimes I think it's the perfectly <laughs> wrong time. But I also say the more serious things get, the more we need to make sure we don't lose our sense of humor and we don't lose an ability to, be, to put that flower in the barrel of the gun. That's great. I love that. No, I think it's coming on at the perfect time. I know it, there's a juxtaposition of like how dire certain things are, but we need resources. And if the resources come through different archetypes that we can tap into, express collectively, you know, we're, we're looking for clues to our next collective hero's journey, the next chapter. So anything we get that, that uplifts us, that gets us to see things creatively, gets us to see new solutions to the problems that seriousness hasn't solved yet. Right, right, right. Well put. And um, we work, I, I wanted to ask you this. I don't know if it's got a, it doesn't really have a straightforward answer because we're talking about the trickster, but um, in, in men's personal development, we, we work with four primary archetypes. It's warrior, king, lover, magician. And we know them well because we've been working with them for so long. And a man can actually roll up his sleeves and, and during kind of self-analysis say, hey, I need to, I don't feel like I'm really touching in on any king energy, or I feel like I could use more warrior energy. And there's processes and support and ways to do that where a man could come out, say, two years later with a different makeup. The, the, the warrior energy or the lover energy has started to work its magic on the man as he's invited that archetype in. And one of the reasons I was drawn to talking to you was because I don't have that much experience working directly with the trickster. Like you said, I'm familiar with some individuals like Abby Hoffman who have embodied that archetype. As a man, is there a way to access and work with that energy without getting fired from your good job? Like, I don't know if I know of a natural way to do it. Going to Burning Man, does that give you access? Or is it simply aware of where you're following rules that maybe the trickster's kind of like, huh, why do you follow every rule? Why do you always do it that way? Why can't we have fun and expand? And what, you know, you're following rules at work that don't need to be followed and you're following rules in your personal life that definitely don't need to be followed, right? Is, right. is, is that getting kind of close? Or I was just sitting with this and wondering because uh, I, I'm interested in the archetype and I'm like, how do we start to put that in men's work? Maybe that would be something that would be interesting and, and lead to new insights for men. Yeah. You know, in our previous conversations, you got me thinking about this and mm-hmm. um, I'd like to start my answer by, you know, quickly going through the, 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 the seven attributes of the trickster. And as you well know, a human being cannot be an archetype, right? They're like demigods that we learn from. So trickster is an archetype, so you can be Mm trickster-ish. You can't be a trickster, right? Correct. Uh, Number two, and you just talked about it, tricksters relish crossing boundaries. They they break rules, um, including gender boundaries. If you read the mythology, they, they, they mess with gender all the time, which is something people are paying a lot more attention to and is a phenomenon right now. Thirdly, they are neither evil nor good. That is 
I think, a great mental exercise, not to, not to behave amorally, but in your own mind to play with the concept. Uh, for lack of a better term, because I, you know, but we live in a computer age, but it's kind of like rebooting your morality, or it's like a palate cleanser. And if you read Trickster Cycles, and I'm going to conclude with that, that is what the Trickster Cycle does. It ends up in a rebirth of morality. So spoiler alert, don't worry about being amoral for a while because you're going to come around to a new morality. Fourth, they play tricks, but they get tricks played on them too. Now, a lot of people, when we talk, they go, you know, well, isn't, isn't Wile E. Coyote, you know, a trickster? <laughs> No, but he makes a great mug. Yeah. And because <laughs> the coyote always loses. Now, the coyote itself is a trickster uh, totem, you know, a, yeah. a, but, but, but Wiley Coyote less than Bugs Bunny. That's why Bugs Bunny's so perfect because he plays tricks, but once in a while, the trick gets played on him too. Fifth, they time travel. And this is quite the digression. I had to think about it for a long time and I wrote an essay on it Trickster's time travel. And so, my essay, and this falls in line with what you're asking, Tony, my essay talks about it's not so important that we try to figure out scientifically how to time travel, but ask ourselves, what does that do to your consciousness to time travel? It gives you a certain level of detachment, and in another sense, it gives you a greater level of connection because you're able to connect across time. Um, number six, and I'm not making this up, but I've read the stuff, poop jokes and fart jokes. <laughs> are really into poop jokes and fart jokes. And then I had to think about that. And then once again, I thought about the play of the child and think about being three or four years old, five years old, and you're learning your very first jokes. Nothing, nothing is funnier than yeah. going to the bathroom jokes or totally. fart jokes. Yeah. Right? It, that, so it is really where our sense of humor starts. Well, and I got a 12-year-old son. It really hasn't gone that far away yet either. So. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's still hilarious. So, yeah. Right. right. And then finally, it's a first principle or it's acquitted through, acquired through trickery, uh, not by conquest or by armies. So um, a lot of the trickster mythology, they just are that way. It's a first principle or as in the case of like Jacob from the Hebrew Bible. Mm -hmm. Jacob tricks Isaac into giving him the birthright. So Jacob becomes more powerful than Esau. Mm -hmm. But the power isn't done with armies or war. It's done with trickery, which mm -hmm. I think may be politically instructive because we're as susceptible to trickery as, as, as we ever have been. And then, so the last thing I want to say about that, two last things. One is I think Bugs Bunny is the perfectly it matches it uh, for the great American trickster of the 20th century. But um, besides the Lewis Hyde book, Paul Radin in 1955 wrote a book called The Trickster. And he's an anthropologist and he went to the Winnebago tribe, which uh, lived in what's now Wisconsin and Kentucky, and wrote down uh, trickster tales. And it's the oldest tales that we know of. And they're, they're very vivid. And it was really those trickster tales that inspired me to uh, see the connection to Bugs Bunny, frankly. Yeah, that's great. So the book, the book is Disruptive Play, The Trickster in Politics and Culture, Shepard Siegel. And um, thank you so much for being on and good luck with everything. We'll be in touch. Tony, I can't wait till we meet again.
It was great to talk with Shep. He mentioned some resources for us that I wanted to share with you again. If the trickster is an interesting topic for you, go pick up a copy of Lewis Hyde's Trickster Makes This World. If the topic of play is fascinating to you, go check out TASP, the Association for the Study of Play. I'm going to go see what they're all about. And go catch Shepard at one of his Alive Disruptive Play events. He will be in Seattle on September 4th at East West Books and on Mercer Island near Seattle on September 8th at Island Books. For a full schedule and details of each event, go to www.shepardsegel.com. That's our show for today. Thank you for listening. Men, good luck in all your endeavors and good luck on your hero's journey. This is Tony Rezac, and you're listening to Basecamp for Men. <laughs>